0: Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jill Fuller. And I'm Jamie Burgess. In today's episode, we're talking to the editor of a beautiful new edition of Little Women, one that contains replicas of the March Girls' letters and papers so you can feel closer than ever to the sisters. This is. Is Little Women in Letters.
1: If you're anything like us, you've watched the Little Women film adaptations looking for the props and pieces that really bring the book to life, the vivid renderings of your own thoughtfully imagined ephemera. For me, It's the cloak that Amy ties over her shoulders in the 2019 Greta Gerwig version, the richly embroidered one that swishes behind her as she climbs up into the carriage with Fred Vaughn. Barbara Heller worked on movie set designs for feature films for many years, bringing all kinds of stories to life through location scouting and other roles. Then she was rereading Pride and Prejudice when she had a sudden and visceral desire to hold characters' letters to each other in her own hands she set out to find the right artists, paper, and materials to make that dream come true.
0: After the success of her edition of Pride and Prejudice, Barbara turned her focus to Little Women, another novel that uses letters within the story. Again, she worked with artists to bring these pieces of writing into removable replicas that are tucked into the book itself. The reader feels the thrill of unfolding a letter as if they are from real, dear friends. In this episode, Barbara discusses the research, process, and design behind these familiar letters, now turned into beloved works of art.
2: When you get to a letter in the story, there's a glassine pocket. So, for example, when uh, Lori invites Joe to the picnic, There is the pocket, and you pull out the note that he writes her, and it's scrawled, because I figured he would have sort of messy, dashed-off handwriting. That's what's described. Mm -hmm. And it's on stationery that was popular during the Civil War that allowed people to show their patriotism. There's the telegram uh, announcing that Mr. March is sick in the hospital. Uh, There's the newspaper that the girls create, you know, in all their different handwriting, and we can talk about that in more detail too. Yeah. So um not every letter is produced because the ones from Europe and from New York are super long and might be exhausting to read in handwriting, but mm-hmm. most of the correspondence and ephemera is is created as though the girls or Mr March, Mrs. March, that they all that they all wrote their notes.
0: Yeah, and that's just an incredible idea of taking something, you know, in the book, the the letters are just there. They're just typed up as part of the book, as part of the page. And it's just such an interesting and unique idea to take that and actually recreate it as a letter, as a telegram, as an actual archival looking document. That is so unique. How how did you come up with that idea of doing that?
2: Well, I initially got the idea while reading Pride and Prejudice for the five thousands time. And <laughs> I was reading Mrs. Gardner's letter to Elizabeth explaining Mr. Darcy's role in Lydia's uh, marriage. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be so much fun to have that letter, the very letter that Elizabeth Bennett held in her hands 200 years ago. And that idea Led me to create the letter edition of Pride and Prejudice, and uh, it was I loved doing it. It took three years. It was a huge undertaking. I did a tremendous amount of research, and the Chronicle Books asked me if there was another book that I would like to do. And when I had pitched it, I thought it would be a good idea to have sort of a series. And I had mentioned Little Women. And then Mirabelle, my editor, came back and said, "I think that would that would be a great a great novel to do." And it had been my sister Millie's absolute absolute favorite book growing up. So she actually helped me uh, a lot and really weighed in on all the handwriting choices and talked a lot about character with me. Um, because the real trick is to figure out what handwriting would the character have? And it's a lot like casting a play. And what attributes of someone's personality are visible in the handwriting? You want as many facets as possible to show, but what is it about handwriting that conveys character? You know, it's not just the size of the of the letters, but, you know, if you're rounded or angular uh, Are they using blue ink or black? Are they compressed? Or is there a lot of space? Is it slanted on the page? All those things really indicate, you know, give clues as to who that person is. And I wanted to pack in as much personality as possible visually into every element that was created. So I did a ton of research because it's also really important for it to be historically accurate because ultimately the goal is to feel that connection to the character and through an experience that is tactile as, as well as visual and the act of unfolding and opening the letter of having something that personal I mean, the very act of writing a letter is, I mean, it takes a lot of effort. In my research, mm-hmm. so many of the letters started with an apology for not having written sooner. <laughs> right, right. And, I mean, almost every letter from, you know, whether right. it was written in 1780 or 1864, you know, it was, there was an apology for not writing sooner. And there was also generally a plea to please write back.
0: That's so funny. Hmm. Nothing's changed. We still do that in text messages. Like I do that when I text people. Like, I am so sorry I haven't texted in a while.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Writing a letter is so much more of an effort. Right.
0: Yeah. And texting is so easy. What's my excuse? So easy. (laughs) And yet you still have to
2: put your thoughts into words. But you know, yeah, so you've got to get the paper and the pen, and you've got to think about your handwriting and what you're going to say. You've got to find a stamp and an envelope and and it's both sort of a pleasure and sometimes a burden. And but when you're the recipient and someone you open your mailbox and you get that letter, you do feel special that someone's made that that effort. But that's um, so interesting
1: because I'm thinking about as you're talking, I'm thinking about how familiar Jill and I are with the text and the content of Louisa May Alcott's letters. Some of these we know. Practically by heart. We've read them over and over again. And yet, you know, we've really read them in the selected letters of Louise May Alcott edition that's just, Mm. you know, in print and, and sometimes even edited. And, you know, I've been to the Houghton Library, I've handled the Alcott's letters, but I never like received the one in an envelope (laughs) and opened the envelope, you know? So all those other little pieces that give you context that tell you, like you said, like, was it dashed off? Was it carefully written at a table? All those different clues. Like, yeah, there's so much that's been lost there and continues to be as it gets like edited and then printed into a edition and so on.
2: Yeah. I think that's really very true. Did you feel a thrill when you handled The actual letters? What was that like?
1: That's always like really special for me. And by now, you know, a lot of researchers have handled them. I don't necessarily feel that I like open an Alcott journal and like their little spirit rises out of it or something. But I do think about. You know, how they really hand like they really touched this, and they were mm. the same way in Orchard House. You know, I look at their belongings and say, they really touched this. This really belonged to Louisa, and it's always like so thrilling. But this, this edition, um, and the art that went into it, this is something that you've done well, you did previously with the Pride and Prejudice book, but um, also in movies, right? That was part of your background as like a set designer.
2: Yeah, well, I started as a location manager on on feature films which was a lot about finding the apartment house, restaurant, block that suited those characters in that story and really helped further the narrative and to give you more clues as to you know who they were and how they lived and you know, their socioeconomic background and their likes and their personality and their dislikes. And I worked a lot with, you know, directors who, I worked with Francis Coppola and Nancy Myers and Woody Allen and Barbe Schroeder, all who had really strong visual sensibilities and oh, wow. uh, with wonderful designers. So I did that for a long time and then I got kind of burnt out and, and I became a parent and um, <laughs> I switched to set decorating which is sort of similar in that now I find the furnishings that go into the sets. So again it has to be very specific to to that character and and to that story. You know what what kind of sofa would they have? What kind of bed? What kind of sheets? What dinner plates? You know, how is it messy? Is it is it neat? And it's a lot about layers you know and and if it's a built set and you're really starting from nothing it's extraordinary how much stuff you have to buy in order to really make it feel lived in and you know just the scattered paper clips and coins and socks on the floor and that detritus <laughs> it's all has to be you know gathered and sprinkled and how it's just an enormous amount of things and i think that that really plays into how i approach creating the letters because i really want to get in you know as much information so what is the paper like you know uh when i did pride and prejudice all the paper was shades of brown and white but by the 1860s there was blue paper there was lined paper, there was monogram stationery, there was letterhead. It was so exciting to have mm-hmm. all these other elements come into play that I could assign to the different characters to tell us more about uh, them and, and where they were in their life. So like Mr. Lawrence, I came across wonderful monogram stationery uh, on a letter written by a politician to Abraham Lincoln. And I was like, I just knew this, you know, that that was perfect for, for him. And the patriotic stationery is really exciting to find. And for Lori, it's fun finding it. it that was definitely more interesting on this project, having uh, more, more visual signifiers
1: to how does the concept of layers play into that is it like like you said the color of the paper the type of handwriting were there more layers on top of that well
2: the aging you know the blots joe's joe's letter when when she's ecstatic that her father is doing better louise may alcott describes it as lots of curly cues and and blots okay. so mm-hmm. uh she writes like the nest of turtle doves and thinking, okay, there should be a little illustration of turtle doves. You know, sort of amping it up that, that way, which felt true to Joe, but also visually just makes it more, more exciting. Um, mm-hmm. For Meg, when she writes to Marmee, the calligrapher Debbie Fleming, who did a wonderful job, I asked her to paint some flowers, you know, that Meg would have made her paper prettier and illustrated it. So just those those touches, I think, add mm-hmm. add a lot without my feeling that I am imposing something on, on the novel.
0: I'm interested. You're talking about with the calligraphers. Um, and I did read an article that you did as well about some of the calligraphers that you worked with. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that Working with them—that's kind of a partnership as well. That you had to do, you know, you're in partnership with Louisa with her novel and with these characters, but also you're working with calligraphers who are doing the actual handwriting and and really writing for these characters. Um, so, what was that like? You know, having to really work with them on this and and really being on the you know the same page. You know, forgive the pun. Yeah, no,
2: that's a great question. <laughs> well, I certainly learned a lot the first time around. I, I start by doing a ton of research, looking at letters written at the time. So for Pride and Prejudice, it was pre-COVID, and I was able to do a lot in person. For Little Women, I really had trouble. I, did so, I was able to do some research in person. Mostly it was online. I was so fortunate that there are a gazillion Civil War letters out there, and a lot of them are digitized and available So I look at a million letters and look at the handwriting and see if I think it works for any of the characters. And I'm looking for handwriting that is distinctive and has character. And then once I have reference letters for each of the characters in Little Women, um, it's generally, it's often hard to find one letter or one Handwriting example that I think really nails it, I, though, though I did for, for Mr. Lawrence. So once I have those, and then I start talking to calligraphers, um, you kind of know when you first talk to someone, you know, by their level of enthusiasm, by the back and forth of the conversation, looking at the material together, whether or not they're both a right fit for the project and a right fit for the character. And I felt really fortunate. I was in New Orleans for the pandemic and I found wonderful, wonderful calligrapher artists there. But it's also really hard to talk about what you want visually, to use words to describe something that is, you know has so much nuance to it. So Mm -hmm. there is an enormous amount of trial and error You know, we go back and forth with handwriting examples. We talk a ton about character. We don't always agree. Um, Sometimes, you know, (laughs) there's a different idea about who that character is, but that's, you know, we really hash it out. They all thought really deeply about who they were writing and what mood they were in when they wrote and what they were expressing besides just those thoughts in the letter. So that, it, that's very fun. I really enjoyed that a lot. And when we went back and forth on the samples, you really feel something when it connects. When it's right, it conveys not just the content, but the emotion and the feeling. I mean, you do, you, you do feel that energy spirit connection. I think the hardest one to find the right balance for was Amy because she's, you know, 12 and 13, but she's an artist, but she's a terrible speller, (laughs) (laughs) but she's fussy. And so like, what, what level should her handwriting be? Like that, that, that's hard. And you're also looking at it in relation to the handwriting of Beth and Joe and Meg, you know, you want each hand to be distinctive. You want hers to seem the youngest. So that was a, a, a really, and I'm really happy with, with where we ended up. But, but it took a long time. Yeah, Yvette really worked hard on that. And, and she also wrote Beth. So it was good for her to find the contrast. You know, Beth was a little older, but she, you know, was shy and quiet. So that handwriting is much smaller. And I found some great, reference for that too, for a little small handwriting. A lot of kids wrote their uh, fathers during the Civil War. So there were letters written by kids to
1: look at.
0: Did you um, look at Louisa's handwriting at all for anything?
1: Yes, very much. No, I was going to ask that same thing. I was going to say like for everyone who, you know, deals in Louisa. The big question is like, how much of it is Louisa and how much of it is Joe, right? Like, where do you start to draw these lines? Because I think, you know, every movie has dealt with that. Every uh, scholar deals with that. If not in their own work, then in the when that work goes into the world, how it interacts with people, because people want both. They want Joe to be Louisa and they want Louisa to be Joe. Did you have a hard time like finding that line?
2: Yeah, you know, I've, you feel this pressure. I felt pressured, of course, to get Joe right, but also just learning about Louise May Alcott's life, I just really wanted to do right by her. I had had no idea until I read a biography, biography of her by Harriet Risen just how hard her life was. Um, but for the handwriting, yes there was two really distinct handwritings for her because she sometimes wrote with her left hand. So some of it right. slanted to the left and some of it slanted to the right. And I didn't understand why until I, I, I read that she was ambidextrous, that she taught herself to be ambidextrous because that was really, the calligraphy, I would look at that and just be so puzzled, you uh-huh. know, was she left handed. So her handwriting definitely influenced Joe's writing it, it dev- but it's not a direct copy in in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennett's handwriting is very much Jane austen's, but it needed to be a little more theatrical I, Joe is theatrical, and so it had to be it, it had to be more heightened to convey the exuberance of Joe's emotions and uh, because the letter that she writes her father is so has so much vitality in it. but then when she writes the poem about my Beth, it really has to convey her grief. So there were two really distinct hands that Debbie came I mean of the same person, but but written with with under under such different circumstances. So looking at Louise's handwriting, to me, it didn't convey Clearly, the enthusiasm, or clearly the sadness, so I would say it was mm-hmm. an, a definite influence, but not a but not a one for one model. I also looked at the handwriting of the other you know of bronson and, and of um, Abba, and their handwriting is interesting, but again, it needed to show a difference between the adults and the children. I mm-hmm. made the parents' handwriting a little more sophisticated and 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 even and Mm -hmm. grown up so that you really saw, especially because the book is so much about the about the daughter's coming of age. So um, I wanted to show a greater range in, in their, in the maturity of the parents. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. It is lucky that we get to see the Alcott's handwriting at all different stages. And we have journals from Louisa when she's, you know, I think the earliest are like seven years old. So you do get to see her growing up. I want to talk about my favorite piece from the edition that we haven't even touched on yet, which is the Pickwick portfolio. I think that everyone who reads Little Women imagines that so clearly in their mind that, you know, the girls have put together this, you know, basically like a newspaper and, and you can imagine the recipes and the different stories in there. Movie versions have have recreated it and done a good job. But when I saw the one that you designed and created for this edition, it all kind of clicked for me. Like I just said, oh, this is why we need this because it really felt like the real one. And it really felt like for me the part of Little Women that I was so excited to hold and look at and remember and feel nostalgic about and feel all my Little Women feelings about. So I want to know about the process of designing and creating that one specifically.
2: Well, thank you so much for all those kind words. That makes me feel very good. Well, I... Uh, did some research into handwritten newspapers and came across, I mean, you never know what you're going to discover when you do the research, and came across newspapers written by uh, Union soldiers in Confederate war camps. And, and one uh, Confederate newspaper written in a Union war camp where these soldiers, you know, very cleverly mimicked real newspapers and they divided the sheet into columns and they made their handwriting like newspaper type and they had classified ads with illustrations and they were wonderful. And I thought, oh, that's what Jo would do. She's a, a, She wants to be a professional writer. She takes this seriously. She would copy a, a real a real paper. But then it was a matter of, okay, would her sisters take it quite as seriously (laughs) as Joe would? (laughs) So I thought she'll make her handwriting look like a typewriter, but Meg won't. You know, Meg has that pretty sort of cursive writing. And one of the uh, handwritten newspapers was done in cursive. So I thought, okay, that's perfect. You know, sometimes it's cursive, sometimes it's print. It depends on the sister. Then they all make their headlines kind of funny and cute. And I came across a letter written by a 10-year-old boy to his father who was serving in the Civil War in uh, sort of block letters in pencil, sort of like big typewriter type letters. And that is the basis of Amy's article. You know, her letter to the editor is, is a really direct copy of that uh beth's is in in her cursive but you know that she spent more time making it sort of trying to do it more more neatly then and uh so they all they all kind of reflect their their personalities and then the little drawings for the ads were really were really fun and and debbie you know we talked about what those would be and, and she she came, she drew all of those and she drew the had the uh pickbook portfolio, the banner headline. And so and then they all wrote each piece separately. I you know, it spent forever trying to figure out how many inches everyone could have so it would all <laughs> fit together on this sheet of paper. It was really crazy. I mean I would set it on the printer, you know, with a cursive type or this, and then I would cut it out and then I would tape it down and then they would write longer. And I just made myself crazy. But Alexandra Morrill, the graphic artist, she's the one who really stitched it all together graphically. Wow, you know, we did the lines by hand because as they were in the hand-drawn papers that separate the columns and everyone made, you know, all the mistakes that they make, you want typos and aging and blots. So it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun to think about.
1: Yeah. I bet Jill is thinking about, um, another handwritten newspaper that she's interested in. I am. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That was what immediately came to mind. So, um, the and Barbara I've emailed you about this too. the Lucan's sisters in the oh, eighteen yeah, seventies yeah, they created their own newspaper modeled after the Pickwick portfolio and they it actually became quite successful. They were quite the little writers and business women they um there were five sisters living in Pennsylvania, and they uh, wrote their own newspaper and they got subscribers and they did this really great marketing tactic where they sent copies of their newspaper to various celebrities um, and famous writers all over the country. And one of them was Little Women, or it was Louisa Malcott. And And what they would do is they'd send a copy of the paper and ask them to subscribe for a dollar. And a lot of times these famous people would. And Louisa started writing back to them and they actually corresponded five different times within the course of a few years. And yeah, they had just this great little correspondence with these five sisters that she started writing with. And then ten years later, she and another one of the sisters, Maggie, in the 1880s, started writing to each other again, and had another, I believe, six letters between them in the next three years in the 1880s before Louisa died. So um, just kind of this really, and they never met. They they exchanged photographs, and they you know wrote about some really deep. Topics, especially those later letters. I'm so fascinated by that relationship. And I've actually been doing some research on the Lucans and kind of tracking them through the through history and finding out who they were but it all started with that you know they did they recreated that newspaper and they wrote their own they called it little things and they each had their own roles and they you know who was doing what type of column and you know uh, Daniel Sheely uh, Dr. Sheely wrote an, an excellent article maybe about 10 years or so ago uh, he did some he researched what survives of their paper and wrote about it so yeah I, that's
2: fascinating and I was interested to see the editions of the Pickwick that are uh, digitized that in the collection of the Houghton Library. Yeah, you know, and she she did divide it up into columns and mm-hmm.
0: I think that's what is really cool about having it in Little Women is that it's not just something that is for Little Women, it is probably the closest thing in, in Little Women that that harkens
1: to the Alcotts because that is something that Louisa and her sisters actually created and did so thinking about the civil war correspondence really makes me think about hospital sketches louisa's book that of her dispatches from her time in the civil war that's a favorite of both jill and me i wish we could see you know some of those letters did you come across any interesting civil war letters like nurses to soldiers families or things like that that had special characteristics oh that's so interesting um
2: didn't know that I, I definitely saw real telegrams informing people of horrible sad news oh, that's I saw letters written by commanding officers to surviving spouses you know expressing condolences and sympathy Unfortunately there were lots of letters written between family members commiserating the loss of a of a soldier I did learn about how mail traveled during the civil war. And and that was really fascinating because it was the first time that many of these young men had ever been away from home. So writing letters and receiving letters was a very big deal. And the army knew that they boosted morale and that they were important so that they had, you know, mail wagons and, um, mail distribution, and, and, and they did their best to really get letters in and out. And the cost of mailing a letter at the time was, was three cents, but the stamps, you know, they had adhesive on them, they were paper. They would get wet in the soldiers' pockets and get wadded up, and they just couldn't keep the postage dry. So they told soldiers if they wrote soldiers' letter on the outside that they would deliver the letter for free and the recipient would would pay when when it was delivered. And it was really, I guess around 1863, that mail was, was delivered to people's homes. But I also never really, I'd never thought about it, that the North, you know, stopped delivering mail to the South. You know, they really cut them off. So mail was delivered between at these, they call them um, points of truce. I have it written down. These, these truce points Where the mail was exchanged between the North and the South, and it was censored, but uh, it had to. Sometimes there was smuggling Uh, in the Confederacy because they had to start from scratch with creating their own postal system. uh, The mail was not nearly as as reliable, and it was more expensive. Mm. So I I had no idea about any of that. I found that that all fascinating.
1: I mean, I still think it's fascinating. Like when you said three cents, I'm thinking today it's only 50 cents. And I remember one of my graduate professors saying like, you know, it's the most socialized part of American culture. It's 50 cents. I could mail my letter to Alaska. I could mail my letter three houses away. It's 50 cents. So it's just like amazing to me that, you know, to just, imagine that whole system taking place 150 years ago and still being able to physically get the paper into people's hands for three cents. I mean, three cents, maybe sounds kind of expensive to them, but it's amazing.
2: I just went to, I was in DC and I went to the postal museum and mailmen used to knock on the door and wait for someone to answer. In order to deliver the mail. And it was adding hours to their day. And that's when they decreed that you had to have a, a mailbox installed. And wow. that was fascinating. Oh my God, yeah. I knew how it evolved.
0: All these little things that we take for granted that we just don't like, oh yeah, a mailbox. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. right. but someone
1: had to think of that. <laughs> you know, that had to come from somewhere. Well, and before a government organized mail system, I mean, what did you do? You just paid an individual person or hoped someone was going that way. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. amazing to think about too. Yeah.
2: I hardly know my son's handwriting. He's 17 because it's all emails and and texts. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm actually a big letter writer. I I do like an extensive spreadsheet of birthday and anniversaries. I send cards for, and I love that, like picking out the stamps. I think that uh, that's really something really fun. To do, or do you do that in real life? No, I, I think about how nice <laughs> it would be, but I have absolutely
2: no follow through <laughs> on that kind of thing. And I um, I think oh, someone someone's his birthday is in a few days, and then I I remember
0: two days after it
2: happens. No, I'm I'm really remiss.
0: One thing I'm interested in is like with the paper and envelopes. You know, do you know it all was there? Were there standard sizes for any of those things at that point, or was it just kind of whatever people had? You know,
2: it did seem to be standard. Okay. It seemed that most of the envelopes were probably about, they were tiny, about three by five, a lot okay. of them. So if you look at Lori's letter and how it's folded, it sort of would be that, that size. Mm-hmm. seemed mm-hmm. pretty common. And there was pencil, you know, uh, which there hadn't been when I was researching Pride and Prejudice. And there was blue ink, and I think it was one of the Thoreau's that created the pencil or had a pencil factory. Have you the heard The Thoreau's about did that?
1: have a pencil yeah. factory, yeah.
2: Well, you know, Hannah's letter, the housekeeper, she writes in pencil. And that letter was tricky because it's written in that dialect with all those misspellings. So that she, she can spell housekeeper, but she, can't, but she misspells miss. You know, it's, I find that a letter a little a tad cringy. (laughs) um, So trying to figure out her handwriting so that it didn't look like the children, you know, that it was uneducated, but not childlike.
0: Yeah, like giving her dignity.
2: Yeah. And she writes, that was kind of fun. She writes on the back of an advertisement, you know, something that she would have had in the kitchen just to uh, give it a little... I thought that was the the, the, uh, pineapple cheese, which was popular at the time, which was not cheese flavored with pineapple, but cheese that was molded in a pineapple shape.
1: But it's interesting to think about in the context of the edition with the letters inside that readers in Louisa's day would have really been able to picture that with texture and personality in a way that you know, contemporary readers can't because we don't have the same culture of letters today right. that they had back then.
0: Yeah, it's like giving the experience of reading it for those first few generations of readers. It's like giving that experience back to us modern readers of at least a, a slight historical context that those early readers would have had that we are missing, that we now can have. And that's, I mean, that is really unique, especially when you consider Barbara that there are so many editions of Little Women. Little Women has never gone out of print. It's so popular to have been able to bring something new to it is incredible. I mean, that is an incredible feat because, because <laughs> you know, I mean, you would think that there's like, what new can you do with Little Women? Like that is something that we one would think. But, you know, with new adaptations that come out, I mean, we see ones, there's a new one, there's a new adaptation coming out that's like, it sets it in the 40s. And with this edition where you're actually giving documentation that's, that really puts you in the characters' shoes and places, I mean, that just shows that, no, there is so much more um, to give the reader. And I just, I absolutely love that.
2: Oh, well, thank you. That makes me feel very good. And that was the intention. So uh, to be able to experience it in a different way, especially if you've already read it a billion times to, you know, have something uh, a different way of experiencing the, the same story and maybe see other facets of it. And for me, it's sort of akin to, you know, visiting a city where the characters in your favorite book live you know standing on the block or the street or it is you do feel uh, some something resonates mm-hmm. and i i hope that that's the experience for people unfolding and, and reading and the letters i'm really fascinated by how louisa may alcott cleaned up and or prettified their lives for, for the novel. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes right. wonder if that's part of her disdain for all those little girls who were her ardent fans, you know, she seemed sort of dismissive of people who worship the book. And I wondered if, what do you think? Do you think part of that is the disconnect from her, the reality of what it was and, and how she portrays it, or maybe it was just being the center of attention
1: also a disconnect i think between um her idea of being girly enough yeah like a lot of the novel is about the fact that she's not conventionally female and all these girls that are you know admiring her and wanting to see her you know, stand up on the stage and turn around in a circle. And Louisa was like, that's kind of the whole point is like that, that isn't me. Um, So I don't know that that just is something that comes to mind right away. I think part of it, you know, I've always seen it as part of it is just
0: at that point in her life, maybe not quite ready to, or able to process some of those childhood experiences, the closest she gets sometimes to, to writing about, some of the things um in a non satirical way cuz she does in transcendental wild oats but um is in her novel work uh, where she writes about when her the protagonist Christy um goes uh, and 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 kind of not really a suicide attempt but but considers the contemplates suicide it, yeah, yeah contemplates suicide um that's kind of the closest that we get i feel like at that time in her life and having been asked to write a girls book and this is maybe me projecting a little bit, but I, I do think that emotionally it was such an emotional time for her. And that was such a difficult period of her life. Um, I think it was putting a little bit of emotional distance, um, being able to take those fictional characters and put them in a little bit of a different context was giving her that emotional distance that she needed to actually write about it. Even though she did make it slightly autobiographical, she was able to do that in a way that was a little bit more emotionally healthy for her. It's interesting because
1: all of our adolescences are so, such a fragile time, aren't they? Like writing about your adolescent self would always require a lot of self empathy, which is (laughs) a hard thing to find sometimes. Yeah.
2: One thing that when I read Harriet Risen's, I loved Harriet Risen's biography of uh, Louise May Alcott and also Anne Boyd Rue's, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Maggie, that's why it matters. But that when I read Little Women, I mean, it is preachy, and those girls are so good and never talk back really to their mother. Mm -hmm. But Then when you read about their lives, they really lived the ethos that Louisa writes about. You know, they really had their convictions and followed through on them and uh did good in the world and i, I was just I, I was very moved by that and um that that part of the book really was true to to who they that that wasn't idealized and had a
1: real impact right right they did have this very strong relationship at the center of their lives with their particularly with their mother, but with both of their parents and the sisters, very. I don't think without that, that they could have lived through so much of what they experienced. I don't think, first of all, it would have been possible to pursue the kinds of things that they pursued without each other's support. And then when the success actually came, I don't think that it would have been possible to... Like go forward into the into the rest of the world without each other. So um, it is so central to who Louisa was. See you next week for Louisa as inspiration. Our conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author John Madison. His dual biography of Louisa and Bronson, Eden's Outcasts, is one of the most valuable contributions to Alcott scholarship, and a special favorite for both me and Jill. He talks about his writing process, his most exciting research discoveries, and how the Alcott's lives are a model for his own.
0: For more about Louisa, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Let Genius Burn. If you're enjoying the show, please give us five stars on your podcast app. Reviews help us find new listeners and new fans for Louisa. You'll find more information, including the resources used for this episode, in the show notes and on our website at letgeniusburn.com.